This chapter that we've just read is about the sealing or the confirming or the inaugurating of the covenant that God makes with his people through Moses. So we talk sometimes about the covenants of the Bible. God structures the entire Bible by means of a series of covenants that he has made with his people. So we can talk about the covenant he makes with Adam, the covenant with Noah after the flood, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, a covenant with David that he would establish his throne for all generations. And then finally, we talk about the new covenant through Jesus that he makes with his people. Uh, But what we read here, this is called the Mosaic Covenant. We said a couple times that as we were preaching from chapter 20 to 23, that that section of the Old Testament where we're reading all the laws that the Lord gives is sometimes called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant. And it's the covenant, it's, it's the content. It gives the law. And that's the essential character of this covenant that God makes with Israel through Moses is that it's a covenant of law. It shows us the character of God. We said over and over that the law always reflects the character of the lawgiver. There's a lot of things that we consider to be part of this, this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that we haven't gotten to yet. And so when we think of the covenant with Moses, we think of the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the food laws, the purity laws, those are things we haven't even read about those yet. And some of those will come in Leviticus and later. Uh, but this is the essence of the covenant God makes with his people through Moses. Now, I want us to remember sort of big picture that although God is making this covenant, this is still a part of the overarching covenant of grace. Right? And so if, if we think even these people who enter into the Mosaic covenant, how are they saved in the Old Testament? Let's be very clear, they're still saved by faith. They're not saved by their obedience to the law. They're not saved by their works. They're still saved by grace. Uh, They could not ever be saved by law-keeping. Right? We know that's not possible. They simply couldn't do it. And remember, what we've said all throughout Exodus is that the very structure of the book teaches us this, that God redeems his people in the first half of the book. He brings them out of slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, and he brings them to himself, and only then does he begin to give them his law. So we've said all along the very structure teaches us they're saved by God's gracious initiative alone, and only then does he give the law. And we... We remember there's a passage in Galatians. Galatians 3.17 makes it abundantly clear, so we cannot miss it. He says that it's simply impossible that the law, which is given 430 years after God made his promise to Abraham, it, it doesn't set aside the promise, that the promise still reigns, which means, that's Paul's way of saying, we're still saved by grace. God is not now giving an alternative means of salvation not teaching them that now I'm going to give the law and the only way to be saved is through perfect obedience. The people are still and always in every step saved by the grace of God. But what we do see that's so interesting in the Mosaic Covenant is there's this continual unfolding. Throughout the Old Testament, God is progressively revealing more and more of his character, of his will, of his desire for his people, there's this progressive unfolding of who God is that he reveals to the people. 
that in this covenant now he's revealing his character, his laws, teaching the people more of obedience. He'll teach them through sacrifices, preparing the people for Christ. Now, what we see here in chapter 24, this chapter that we've read, I want us to see a couple things. What we read is primarily this ceremony. It's a covenant sealing ceremony between God and the people. It's mediated by Moses. And I want us to focus on these three things, the terms of the covenant, the blood of the covenant, and the meal of the covenant. It's all this one ceremony now that that we read about where God seals the covenant, and he does it with the terms of the covenant, the blood of the covenant, and the meal of the covenant. Uh, And now let me remind you again just as we study this passage, why do we study it? Here we're going to be giving our attention to the Mosaic Covenant, remembering that we are not members of the Mosaic Covenant. Right? We partake in the New Covenant that Jesus inaugurated. But nevertheless, we learn so much about Jesus through the Mosaic Covenant. Right? In fact, one of the main points of the entire book of Hebrews is showing us the glory of Christ in comparison to everything that went before. Saying that Jesus is simply better. He's a better mediator than Moses of a better covenant than the old covenant, built on better sacrifices and better promises than the old covenant. So all of Hebrews is looking back, and we're going to turn to Hebrews a couple times today, because it looks back at, at the Mosaic Covenant, even this very passage, to teach us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So first of all, look at the terms of the covenant. Verse 3, Moses came to the people and he told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. Now when it says in verse 3, the words of the Lord and the rules, that's probably distinguishing the words of the Lord being the Ten Commandments and the rules being everything else. Right? The words are the Ten Commandments, the rules are everything else, chapters 21 through 23. Uh, And if we go back to the beginning... Uh, of the rules in chapter 20, verse 22, it says, the Lord said to Moses, right? So all of chapters 21, 22, 23 is the Lord speaking to Moses. And now, so 24, 3, Moses comes and he speaks to the people. God has given his law to Moses. Moses takes the law to the people and he reads it to them. He speaks all of this to the people and the people answered with one voice, and they say, all, that the word, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now this is important in terms of sealing this covenant, right? God through Moses presents to them the terms of the covenant, and the people agree. They say, yes. Yes, we enter into this covenant. All that the Lord has said to us, we will do. And that's important. That's important in this covenant because the Mosaic covenant is primarily... It stands out to us. It's a covenant of law, right? That's the main feature of the covenant with Moses is that it's filled with the law. And the people hear the law and they say, yes. Yes, we'll obey. That's how you respond to the law given by the Lord. They respond in verse 3, and then they do it again in verse 7, right? We heard it twice. Moses reads it in verse 3, and the people respond. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then as part of the ceremony, he reads the law again. And the people say again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. 
And that's when he seals them with the blood. And we'll get there in a minute. But I want us to, to think about this for a moment, that the people agree to the words of the covenant. They hear it and they say, yes, all that the Lord has spoken, we will obey. Now, to those of us who know how this story plays out, who know how poorly they're going to do in their obedience, to know how quickly they're going to go astray from all the words the Lord has spoken, we hear that, and don't we kind of smile and nod condescendingly and think, how cute. Those adorable Israelites, they agree to this covenant. They have no idea. They have no idea. They can't possibly obey. But nevertheless, I I want us to see two things about the Israelites here. First of all, they recognize that the words that they have heard are the very words of God. When Moses speaks to the people, what do they say? All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they get it right. The words they've heard is not the law of Moses. It's not simply Moses speaking. They hear Moses speaking, but they understand that Moses is simply bringing to them that which God has given to him. Right? And so they recognize and they say, all that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. And when we read this chapter, there's a certain weightiness or a certain profundity that, that fills this chapter. And part of that is because we recognize the amazing, awesome thing that is going on here, that what is happening in this chapter, this is not simply one more human contract that two parties have agreed to shake hands on. Right? They haven't simply heard this and considered it and said, okay, that's not bad. We have a little feedback to give. Right? Maybe we can tweak a few things. They recognize that what Moses brings is the very word of God to his people. The Lord God of heaven is speaking to his people. And when you hear the word of the Lord, and when you recognize that the words that you are, are reading or the words that you are hearing is no human word, but it's the word of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, who has created and sustains all things. What other proper response can there be other than to receive it and say, yes, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. You you simply can't respond any other way. And one of my prayers for us is that we will actually have that same response. That when, when we hear the word of the Lord, whether it's in our own reading or in the preaching of the word of God, the public reading of the word of God, we will receive it for what it is. We'll submit our hearts to it joyfully and humbly. And we'll say, yes, all that the Lord has spoken. We receive these words. We don't attempt to edit these words. We receive them and we will obey. Have you not experienced this, this reality that we're so often suffering from an over-familiarity with the Bible? That we know these words. We've read them. We've heard them so many times. And yet, these are the very words of God, and what else can we do but obey? And this is the second point. First, they recognize what it is, and when they recognize it, what else can you do but say, yes, all that God has said we will do? I think, for the most part, rather than nodding condescendingly at these Israelites, we ought to be seeking to emulate them, shouldn't we? 
for those who have known the grace of God shown to us in Christ, who have come to this conviction of our own sin and yet known that that God demonstrates his love for us in the very death of his only son, Jesus Christ, as the penalty, the atonement, the sacrifice to cover our sins. That is a grace that, that changes your heart, that changes us from the very inside out, that gives us a new love for Christ, And what we know from the Bible of grace is that grace does not absolve us of the obligation to obey. In fact, it does the very opposite. Grace gives us a new desire to obey. The grace of God has appeared, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness. To renounce worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Isn't this what Jesus himself says, if you love me? You keep my commandments. That's why one of our our membership vows, I was thinking about this again this week. We're teaching the new members class right now. And one of the membership vows that we take in this church, number three is this. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? See, sometimes we trip over that vow a little bit and we think, whoa, we're kind of getting a little legalistic here. I thought salvation was by grace. What's this about obedience? Right? But, but we hear the words of Jesus, if you love me, you obey. Right? The words of James, do not be hearers only, but be doers of the word. He says those who are hearers only, they deceive themselves. They deceive themselves if they hear and do not respond All that the words of the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. James says, be doers of the word. Right? If your heart has truly been changed by the grace of God, then then yes, you, you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. So we receive this. These are the terms of the covenant. But then, there's the blood of the covenant. There is the blood of the covenant. Look at verse 4. And so, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And this is the ceremony itself. The ceremony itself that that seals the covenant that God is making with his people. Where Moses rises early and he builds the altar, the twelve pillars that represent the twelve tribes, And these young men who are acting as the priests, they come and they offer sacrifices and they collect all the blood of the animals in these basins. And they apply the blood of the covenant to the parties of the covenant. And so half the blood is thrown against the altar. And then he reads the book of the covenant. They affirm that they're willing to receive it. They're going to obey it. And Moses throws the blood on the people takes a, a branch, most likely, something, a stick with leaves, and dips it in the bucket and just flings it out on the people. 
And, and we're all thankful that we're members of the new covenant. Now, not the Mosaic covenant, because that's a little gross. <laughs> but what is he doing? You see, in order for the people to enter into a covenant with God, they must be marked with the blood of the covenant. That is how this covenant is sealed. That is the, the seriousness of the covenant. The animals are sacrificed and the blood of the sacrifice is applied to both parties. It's applied to God through the altar and it's applied to the people. Now, if you have your Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 9 for a moment. Uh, because Hebrews chapter 9 reflects on this very thing, this application of the blood to the people. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Hebrews 9, 18 says, Therefore, not even the first covenant, talking about the Mosaic covenant, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And what he said just before this, chapter 9, verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So what, what Hebrews is telling us here is to, to understand what's going on. That in order to enter into a covenant with God, you must be marked by the blood of the covenant. It has to be applied to the people. That's what seals the covenant, is the application of the blood. And we think on that and we read that in Exodus and that seems weird, right? That seems archaic. But the same truth applies to us today. That for us, even as members of the new covenant, to enter into a covenant with God, what must happen? We also must be marked by the blood of the covenant. We are marked by the blood of the covenant and it's the blood of Christ. Now, it's not sprinkled on us in a literal fashion. It's not flung out at us, but it is received by faith. In fact, 1 Peter 1, verse 2, says that we have been chosen by God for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. Obedience and sprinkling. Isn't that exactly how the Mosaic Covenant was inaugurated? They pledged their obedience and they were sprinkled by the blood. 1 Peter says, you're members of Christ for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. You too, who have entered into the covenant, the new covenant, with Jesus, you are sprinkled by his blood. And that's why now we reflect on not only the blood of the covenant, but the meal of the covenant. The meal of the covenant. Because this is where it gets very interesting. In fact, starting in verse 9, back in chapter 24 of Exodus, this is, uh, to my mind, the most amazing verses of this passage. Chapter... 24, verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. 
like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Moses and the elders go, and they eat a covenant meal in the very presence of God. And it says they saw God. They saw God and they ate in his midst. And and here's the final act of the sealing of the covenant is the the terms have been read and the blood has been applied. And now to make it official, they join together around the table and they eat a fellowship meal to seal the covenant with God. And, and, And this is the most amazing part. We know what the Old Testament says. No one can see God and live. Right? Which is why when Moses later will ask to see God, and God says, no, no one can see my face and live, but he puts him in this cleft of the rock, and he passes by, and Moses is able to see God's back. But here it says something even more amazing. Moses and the elders go up, and they see God. And there's no attempt to explain it away except to say, God didn't lay his hand on them. And what do they describe? We read this. Moses is trying to tell us about it. What does he describe? He saw God. What did he look like? He can't tell us. He can describe the floor. It's a lot, I think, like the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he has this vision and he's in the throne room of God. And all he can describe is that the train of his robe fills the temple. And the foundations of the temple are shaking. And the seraphim are flying. And he, he describes the seraphim for us. But the vision of God is simply altogether too glorious and too majestic and too incomprehensible for words. And it's the same thing here. He sees God and all he can do is describe the floor. You have to get this picture. The floor, it was paved with sapphire, the very heaven for clearness. And... When they're in the presence, it's this very gracious presence of God because he's with the people and he doesn't lay his hand on them and they eat and they drink. They're eating a covenant meal. Most likely, it doesn't tell us exactly, but they're probably eating the the peace offering, the fellowship offering that they've just offered on the altar that Moses has built because this offering, the peace offering, is the only offering. You know, Leviticus will lay out all the rules for all the offerings. The peace offering is the only offering in which the worshipers eat some of the meal which is sacrificed. The burnt offering, it's burnt completely to the Lord. But in the peace offering, part of it is burnt on the altar and part of it is given to the worshipers to eat a, a sacrificial covenant celebratory meal in the presence of God. And that's an act of worship. And it seems like that's what they're doing here. Moses and the elders are eating a covenant meal, a sacrificial act of worship here in the very presence of God. Now, let's just take a step back and again look at what happened in this chapter. The people are gathered to seal their covenant with the Lord. And what happens? There's the preaching of the word, the sacrifice, and the covenant meal. The preaching of the word, the blood of the sacrifice, and the meal is then eaten in the presence of God to seal the covenant that they are making with God. Does that sound familiar? Like anything we do together? To have the preaching of the word and the eating of a covenant meal together? Of course, we don't have... A sacrifice, but we do profess our faith in the once-for-all finished sacrifice of Christ. Think about the meal that we're about to 
share together, the Lord's Supper, which Jesus will nourish his church with. When we come to the Lord's table, we're eating a sacrificial meal. It's the meal of a sacrifice. Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Just like the peace offering in which the sacrifice was made and the the worshipers then would participate by eating some of the food of the sacrifice. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming and recognizing and believing that the sacrifice has been made. And we partake of it as members of God's covenant people who eat together a sacrificial meal. It's a sacrificial meal. It's also a covenant meal, is it not? Jesus says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus makes a new covenant by means of his own sacrifice, and he then takes the blood of the sacrifice, and he applies it to all those who are members of his covenant. See, he doesn't dip a branch in the bucket and fling the blood at the people. What does he do? He gives us the Lord's Supper. What is going on in the Lord's Supper? Is he applying the blood of the covenant to the members of the covenant? It is a covenant meal. In fact, Hebrews, again, reflects on this very thing. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goat and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. That is, Jesus is being pictured for us as the greater Moses. Yes, Moses went up the mountain and made a covenant and applied the blood to the people. Jesus didn't go up the mountain. He went into heaven itself by means of a better sacrifice, that of his own body. And he applied a better blood to the people of a better covenant. But it's marking us as a covenant meal. And the blood is being applied to us just like the blood was applied to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 24. The blood of the covenant must be applied to the people. And not only that, when we take the Lord's Supper, are we not eating and drinking in the very presence of God? That's the most amazing part of chapter 24, is that that God graciously condescends and he allows Moses and the elders to be in his presence and to see him. And he doesn't lay his hands on them. The Lord of heaven and earth has chosen his people and he's embraced them and he invites them into his presence to eat and to drink. See, when we gather for corporate worship, one of the reasons that this is is so important, so majestic, so amazing, so glorious, is that the very God of heaven and earth who created all things gathers together with his people. That his presence condescends to us to be in our midst, to teach us by his word and to feed us and to nurture us through the supper that he provides for his people. And we are in the very presence of God receiving the covenant meal that we eat together. I heard recently someone asked a question to an experienced pastor. They said, when we observe the Lord's Supper, should the overall mood be celebratory or somber? It should be celebratory because this is the means of our salvation, which is a cause for great rejoicing, or should it be somber as we consider our own sin that made necessary the death of our Savior on the cross? 
And I think the, the proper answer to that question is, the, is the, the mood of the supper should reflect the mood of the meal that Moses and the elders ate in the presence of God. And if we could recreate what they were experiencing, I imagine there must have been overflowing joy at the privilege of being called up the mountain into the presence of God and to see God and eat and drink and not be consumed. But I imagine there was also a very profound seriousness to that occasion, that there was a weightiness to being in the very presence of a holy God, that yes, there is joy, but it's not chipper or glib. It's a weighty kind of joy. It's Psalm 211 that says, Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. That there is a joy that is accompanied by trembling when you're in the presence of God and you've been invited and you're there and he's graciously condescending and yet you know it is the Lord himself. When you're in God's presence, Psalm 16, it tells us, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But there is a seriousness. I believe it changes a person's heart to be in the presence of God. One person, Solomon Stoddard, he said, one glimpse of the glory of God will do more than all the punishments in the world to make men holy. One glimpse of the glory of God will do more than all the punishments in the world to make men holy. In other words, he's saying, what is is it that will change a person's heart to give them new joy in Christ, to give them a new delight in obedience, to draw them in? He says, it's not going to be the threatenings of the law. It's not going to be the punishments that make someone holy. It's going to be coming into the presence of God and by his grace receiving just a single glimpse of his glory, unmediated that must have changed the people. I believe it would have solidified and deepened their joy and their contentment and their peace, given them perhaps a new sense of the seriousness of sin, a new distaste for the things of this world, a new firmness in their hope and unshakability to their joy, to sit in the presence of God and to eat and to drink the meal that he would have fed his people, that he would have acted as host at. Because time spent in the presence of God changes you in a way that that simply nothing else can. That nothing else can. Hebrews 12 reflects on all of this one last time. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 For you, members of the new covenant, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. You see, he's, he's reflecting on Mount Sinai, the experience of the people of Israel making this covenant. But he says here at the end, verse 28, Therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He reflects on that and he reflects on what we have been given in Christ, which is better by far. And he says, here's the three, the three moods. Gratitude, reverence, and awe. Joy 
and, and, and seriousness. Reverence, gratitude, awe, all mixed together and says, let us be thankful then because we have received a kingdom which will never be shaken and our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Let's, let's pray to the Lord and prepare our hearts to eat a covenant meal in the presence of God. Father, we are so thankful for Christ. We are so thankful for Christ, the mediator of a better covenant, enacted on better promises by means of a better sacrifice that has secured for us an eternal redemption from before all time, that has changed our hearts, that has brought us into the very presence of God with great joy, with great joy. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit will teach us, apply your word to our hearts. May the grace and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ do its work among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing our song of of reflection. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner.